welcome to this episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. Uh, this is not the first, but I guess the first one that I'm on that is sadly in the post post trip yes. uh, Silmarillion Film Project era. I don't know if you've gotten to talk about that at all. A little um, bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's an end of an era. It's very sad. Although I, I'd be very surprised if she doesn't show up at some point. I agree. I agree. But, but anyway, we must soldier on. Um, that's that's a, you know one of the great themes of Tolkien. Is you got to keep going. Exactly. So the theme will, of loss. Will... Yeah. Exactly. And coping with loss. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, hey, right. the the it's you know at least we're not yet at the stage in the Silmarillion film project when some of us who have been involved in it from the beginning start dying of old age, which you know could come at some point so (laughs) it's better it's better to start bracing ourselves for these realities sooner rather than later that's true (laughs) that is true that is true and you know just to just to be even more morbid at least none of us has gotten COVID. that's true that's true that would be really sad so anyway i am dave kale and uh and probably huge surprise to you but you can hear i'm joined uh, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Probably more accurate to say that he's joined by me. The way <laughs> uh, but anyway, tonight we're talking about really the best part of the Silmarillion film project, the frames, the, the frame story, what it's not really about. Exactly. It's somehow ends up being almost more interesting. What it's not really about. No, exactly. And we are really excited about the frame idea uh, for this year. Uh, so I'm... Uh, I'm uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, Just a couple really quick announcements before we start today. First, a reminder about our new Signum store on Redbubble. So if you go to Redbubble slash people slash Signum store, you will find us there. Uh, And there's uh, lots of really fun stuff. We're uh, putting up some new uh, designs before the holidays. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, So... Uh, don't forget to go check out the Signum store there. And last night, yeah, oh, Stephen says uh, the masks that they sell there are the the best masks you've tried. Yeah, I love my. I have a I have a Signum mask, a Signum Eagle mask. Um, and uh, in fact, I think I have it in my pocket. Come to think of it, I always carry it in my pocket. That's right. Here it is, my Signum Eagle mask. Look, product placement. There we go. Huh? Pretty cool, right? And they are super comfortable. It's really, it's really nice. As soon as I put it on for the first time, Stephen, I was like, whoa, that is a really nice mask. Anyway, um, really cool things. So anyway, um, and oh, so actually the new designs are up. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So they're new designs. Um, uh, one of my, one of, one, it's one of my favorite designs. I'm really looking forward to getting this on several things. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a Beware the Leopard sign. Uh, this is a Hitchhiker's Guide reference for those of you who don't know the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, I'm totally getting a Beware the Leopard sign to put up uh, on the uh, on the, the Signum offices. Anyway, uh, so uh, lots of really fun stuff there at the Signum shop. Also, last night we just began a brand new topic, a brand new book in the Mythgard Academy series. We are talking about Dante's Inferno. Uh, so I did my uh, my first class. It was the introductory session last night. The recording of that should be up soon on YouTube and the podcast. And, of course, you can uh, see the video uh, on the Twitch channel there as well. Um, 
and uh, the uh, uh, anyway, so we'll be we'll be doing that uh, for the next few months uh, there. Uh, so you 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 know now's a great time to jump in and join. You can join us live for our discussions uh, of Dante uh, as we move through the poem. So that's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So anyway, that's um, just two quick announcements to begin now. Before we get to the frame, <laughs> we have some a couple things that I want to finish up. Uh, that is, I, I wanted to, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the the flow of time. Of course, we've spent some time discussing the overall shape of things um, in uh, uh, you know the season five plot line, especially as regards humans. We knew this was a big challenge at the beginning. Uh, you know, we talked about it from the very start. How do we stage the moving through the generations of the men and how do we want to do our time scale in particular? How to what extent do we need to uh, to compress it or what else to make it flow um, with the sp- you know, with the scope of our narrative, essentially? Um, and I'm pretty happy with where we've settled out. So by looking at the genealogies here, just kind of a little bit of a review um, from another perspective of what this looks like. And I really wanted to kind of uh, review. So this is, these are not the published genealogies. These are, these are our genealogies, the genealogies that fit the story as we are uh, depicting it here. So um, we've got the key dates up there in the top left corner um, from 340 is when we have Finrod meeting Bayor. Um, so notice we have several different kind of periods there. The, uh, the, the kind of gray band uh, in the like top third there on the picture is the Nargothron generation. So that's the third generation. So Boron basically uh, is uh, is the in that first generation of kids. That's the grandson. We have him as the grandson of Beor. Um, so he's not born in Nargothron because, of course, Finrod doesn't meet Beor until 340. So, but, but Boron is young. He's like a teenager when they meet, and so he's the first generation who sort of moves uh, to Nargothron. Adenel, uh, the wise woman, is going to be sort of arising as the new leader um, who essentially kind of um, kind of takes over leadership uh, from Boron as it's going to cease to be patrilinear. Uh, it's going to be, you know, kind of, uh, you know, acclaim by acclaim following the wisest person in the in the uh, in the, the tribe there. And so Adenel is going to be leading uh you know, the group after that. And of course, as we've discussed, she's going to hand that off to Andreth, who is the granddaughter in turn of Boron. Um, yeah, we have, Marie says that uh, Beor at his death um, gives the nod to Adonel and Adonel is 29 at the time of Beor's death. Uh, so, you know, that's sort of a sensible handoff there. And then of course, Andreth is going to take over. As I said, Andreth is Boron's granddaughter. So she is the fourth generation. Beor is her great-grandfather. Great-great-grandfather. Um, and um, uh, and that's fine. So she has been born. So she will have been, she's born a generation into essentially the time uh, of uh, th- their time in Nargothron Boromir, the son of Boron. And so the great-grandson of Beor will be the first in that line uh, in Beor's line, direct line, who's born in Nargothrond. And so Andreth is the generation after that. So they've been now in Nargothrond for some time by the time that Andreth is born. Um, Andreth will be initiating the move to Ladros at four, in four, the year 410, which um, has, uh, which puts Andreth 
at age 25 at that time. So she's the young leader of the people um, leading them off to Ladros and Adonel dies in that year. So when she, you know, so she, she has been kind of bringing up Andreth, recognizing her potential and kind of grooming her as her successor, uh, as the leader of their people. And, um, and she, of course, you know, will be, uh, you know, it's not like, Andreth is waiting for Adonel to kick the bucket, and then as soon as she's dead, being like, okay, and now we're out of here, right? I mean, obviously, this will be something that will have been discussed and is a plan that will have been blessed by Adonel before her death as well, I would imagine. Um, exactly. As Marie says, she agrees. Adonel agrees with the move, but doesn't make the journey herself. So um, th- there could even be, I would think we could even play that as, like, ba- basically, Andreth kind of waiting for that. Like, they... Um, she doesn't want to move Adonel, right? Adonel is, 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 is aged. She doesn't want to make the trip. They don't want to leave Adonel behind. So like the tribe as a whole sort of, is sort of awaiting that moment, right? You know, and Adonel knows like when she, when she goes, then everybody will leave, um, as a kind of, um, yeah, Nick says it's kind of like, uh, Methuselah agreeing with the building of the Ark, but he doesn't travel on it himself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, something like that. Um, so yeah. Anyway, so that's um, um, I think that that seems to me to work really well. Um, notice one thing that we have working in through here is that ML Deer, uh, the mother of Baron, uh, we have being a descendant of Adonel herself. So we have ML Deer being the granddaughter of Adonel. Um, so we have through that another connection and another direct link to the house of Beor, right? Andreth herself has no children, so the line doesn't continue through her. Um, but there are there are others, right? She's one of, and we have Andreth here as one of three children, uh, Bregor, her older brother, and Bregalas, her younger brother. Um, so Bregor is the one who is going to be the father of Bari here. That's what he's sort of famous for. <laughs> it's sort of his job, right, is to be Barahir's father. Um, and then Barahir is going to marry ML Deer, bringing the house of, you know, the line of Beor and uh, Adonel's grand, uh, granddaughter uh, together, which is kind of fun. So they are Baron's parents. Um, and I, I like the idea of having um, Baron have basically kind of ancestors on both sides that are, that are known to us, right, that, that are part of our story. Um, uh, to kind of see the, it it feels to me like a really wonderful way to make Baron into um you know the the kind of uh, i don't know like final representation of the house of Beor right like the the house of Beor kind of culminates in Baron in a sense um so I like that I think that that's pretty cool um we have Bregalas, so the the bold uh names here are is the the leadership of the house right from Beor to Adonel to Andreth and it passes from Andreth to her younger brother Bregalas when they get to uh Dorthonian you know when they when they get uh, to Ladros and the idea there is that so Bregalas he's going to succeed Andreth not because she's retiring not because she's incompetent but because she foresees and begins to train him up uh because she knows that a new 
kind of leadership is going to be needed, right? No longer is the House of Beor going to be, you know, in quiet retreat in the in the halls of Nargothrond, um, where what they primarily need is sort of, you know, the quiet wisdom of their of their uh, wise leader, you know, their their wise woman leaders that they've had. Um, they are going to need active leaders in the field, uh, and she's going to see this, and she's going to train up her younger brother Bregalos. Um, do we have a reason? Um, I don't know uh, exactly, as, as Marie says, it's a shift from like the council of the wise to warrior kings, essentially. Um, and Andreth will foresee the need, their need for that um, up in Ladros. Do we have a do we have a reason why it's going to be Bregolas and not Bregor? Like why she turns to her younger brother instead of her older brother? I mean, her older brother Bregor, we have him being born in the year 380. So he'll be 30 at the time of the move. Um and presumably it's not immediately after the move. It's not like the day they get to Dorthonia and she's like, and I'm out, you know, who's coming up next? So it, there'll be, she will be still leading the people during the time of transition there. So I guess on the one hand, you could simply say um, that uh, uh, you could say that, I mean, he's old. I mean, it's, you got to think there's going to be at least like 10 years or so that they're you know the first five, 10 years minimum there in Ladros that Andreth is going to still be actively the leader as she's transitioning. Um, you know, by the time that that period is over, Breaker is going to be like 40. Um, uh, Marie says, of course, her older brother was raised in um, um, in Nargothrond. Uh, so he's not exactly the future warrior king of the people, exactly, whereas Bregalas is um, um, uh, is younger. I mean, as we can see, he was born in 396 by our reckoning. Uh, keep in mind, all of these dates, these are our dates, right? We've shifted things because we've compressed the time. So this is, these are uh, all dates. I want to make sure there's no confusion about this. You know, I want people to be writing in being like, you messed up those dates. No, we didn't mess it up. We made them up, that there's a difference. Um, so... Uh, in our reckoning here, Bregalas will be 14 when they move to Ladros. Um, so he'll still be, you know, sort of young and moldable, right? So he will be kind of learning the ways uh, there. And Bari here is certainly going to be, as several people are, are, are pointing out, um, Bari here is the one that she's really training up. He is going to be a child, right? He's going to be four, when they move to Ladro. So Bari here is going to grow up knowing nothing other than Dorthonian, really. Maybe, you know, one or two very slight and disjointed memories of his time in Nargothrond. Um, I could imagine Bari here, you know, continuing into his adult life with like one or two kind of flashbulb memories or maybe like visual memories, like the, you know, the sight of something or, you know, some kind of association. Um, I can imagine us kind of playing with that in some way, but he won't have any memory of Nargothrond other than that. Um, uh, if she train, if she were to, so one question is, um, does, um, uh, yeah. Um, so if she's going to, so the, the question is, does she pass the, does she pass the, uh, the, the torch, the leadership torch to Bregalas at all, or does she just t pass it directly to Bari here and train him up? And I guess it depends on how long we want that to take, right? Because he's four, right? So if he's four, <clears throat> he can't realistically take over as leader 
until he's somewhere between 16 and 20, right? Even if he's very precocious, you know, handing him the leadership reins at the age of, you know, 15 is probably not a good idea, um, even if she's been consciously grooming him for a decade, right? So, um, you know, let's assume he's 20 when he becomes you know, the leader of the House of Baor, that still leaves her with almost 15 years of training that she's got to give him, basically, um, before he takes over as leader. And that's not impossible, but if she hands it to Bregolas, uh, she can, um, right, as Marie says, I've known too many 15-year-olds. Yeah, no, I hear that. I hear that. Um, uh but Rhiannon, I agree. I think if, you know, uh, Rhiannon says if Andreth's brothers are not called the leader, they would probably still be involved in the leadership, Again, especially as they're beginning to transition, as would certainly happen within the first 10 years, right, to a more active leadership. So it seems to me that the best way to handle that kind of situation would be to have... So, and, and Rhiannon, I like your idea that Bregor requests to be passed over. Like, he's just not the leadership type, right? He's... Maybe Bregor is like a serious introvert, and he grew up for his first 30 years in Nargothrond, and he's willing to go along and to learn a new life, but he has no real interest in becoming, you know, a woodland ranger and warrior chief. Um, you know, he's still going to, you know, he's he's kind of, I mean, I think that one of the things that's going to be inevitable, um, given the situation that we've, um, we've, alighted on here for the House of Beor is that there's going to be the older generation who was raised in Nargothrond who are going to be kind of soft, who are going to have different values, um, and the younger generation who have been raised in Dorthonian who are going to have a pretty different view of things, going to be much more, um, you know, active out in the woodland, right, going to be much more uh, martial in their training. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so... Um, that's um we could we could definitely we could definitely use Bregor in that way as a kind of spokesperson for the older generation there they wouldn't necessarily be like disaffected they wouldn't again they they can be you know most of them be supportive of the move to Dorthonian but it's going to be hard for them to adapt to the new culture right the culture is going to be changing slowly over time um Whereas I can imagine Bregolas at the end, at the age of fourteen, right? He's moving in his teen years into Dorthonian, and he would be in a different relationship with their new world, perhaps. And Barhir certainly um, representative of, uh, as Marie called it, the Dorthonian generation; those who are either born in or grow up entirely in uh, Dorthonian are going to be, you know, very different culturally in a very different cultural place than their um, fathers or uncles uh, who grew up, or grandfathers, uh, who grew up uh, in, in in Nargothron. Boromir, for instance, Andreth's father, is going to live in Dorthonian with him for 20 years before he dies, right? So um, Barahir's grandfather is going to be around for a long time. Barahir's going to be, what, 24 uh, when Boromir is uh, dies. So Boromir, the grandfather, you know, the great grandson of Beor is going to live to see Barahir rule, essentially, uh, in Dorthonian. Um, but he is very much going to be, he's, uh, you know, he's a second generation Nargothron baby, right? And will have lived in Nargothron for, what, 55 years, 
before they move. So he will be uh, firmly entrenched in that uh, sort of older culture. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, great, great. So anyway, that's, um, that works. There's, looks like there's some, uh, different opinions on what Bregalas's role could be. I could see a couple possibilities there. Bregalas could see himself as a kind of transitional figure, right? That he is, uh, the, sort of the natural, since Bregor is not into it, right? Bregolas is the natural one as the brother of, you know, the younger brother of Andreth, uh, to kind of, you know, um, do more of this sort of active outward leadership, even though everybody understands that Bari here is the one that is being trained up to be the leader. But again, he's four, so it's going to be some time before he can take over. And that Bregolas sees himself as a kind of bridge, second in command to Andreth officially, but but taking on some leadership roles, but seeing himself as a kind of bridge to Bari here, right? Uh, preparing to um, essentially abdicate. It's, I think it's going to be a little less formal than that in the world of the House of Bayor. Um, but essentially, stepping aside when Barahir is, is when Andreth decrees Barahir uh, uh, ready, because he still is going to be, to see himself as being essentially under his sister's authority. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So Maria's thinking, since Bregolas is 11 years younger than Andreth, um, as she says, somebody has to teach Bari here how to do all the rangery stuff, right? You know, like it's not going to be Andreth. Um, and if, and she is going to want to have somebody who can train him up in, she can train him up, you know, in, in wisdom and, and, uh, and foresight and things like that. But, um, he's going to need somebody to train him up as the active warrior king leader of the house of Beor. Um, and Bregolas is a very fitting candidate for that. Again, coming to Dorthonian as a 14-year-old and still able to learn a lot of that uh, himself. Um, Nick is suggesting, of course, it's possible a dashing elf lord could possibly teach some of that stuff as well. That is true. That is very possible. So that we, that is a thing we could consider. Except the dashing elf lord isn't necessarily going to be in the picture for 14 years, right? He's going to recuse himself from the picture sooner rather than later uh, because he, uh, you know, uh, decides to call a halt uh, to the romance. But anyway, certainly he can also take a hand, uh, at least for a time, uh, in influencing and, and training Bari here, uh, for sure. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so, right, and of course, as Nick points out, Bregolas is also going to need somebody to teach him. But yes, there will be elves around who, who will certainly be ready to help. Um, and that, again, seems to me a very logical context in which Andreth should be meeting Ignor, right? Ignor's, in, I mean, he would be, certainly would have been in communication with Finrod, would know that the House of Beor are coming and why, um, would know that the House of Beor is coming there in order to support them, in order to support Angrod and, and Ignor, but also is going to need their support and need their help and help and training. Um, and so, you know... It, nothing would be more natural than for Ignor to come and establish uh, good relations with the leader of the House of Beor. And, of course, he ends up establishing excellent relations with the leader of the House of Beor, as it turns out. Only too good. 
uh, when, uh, when the result is known. Okay, so I see we still have some things to kind of sort out there about exactly. And Nick seems to be uh, holding out hope that maybe Bregalas could serve another role. He wants an angry young, uh, 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 an angry young man generation. You know, like the angry teenage rebel uh, generation in Nargothrond. You know, part of the people stirring up trouble. And so I think he was thinking of maybe Bregalas for that role. Um, uh, and it's possible to do both, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Bregoas can reform. Bregoas can can reform, right? You know, pre it's like, uh, you know, when he's twelve and thirteen, he's a bit of a handful, right? But uh, uh, but he uh, he channels this po- this positively, right? When he gets to Darthonian uh, and has something to do, I think that could work. I think that could work. Okay, cool. And then of course I'm skipping Bregoas. Of course is the um, uh, the father of Baragond and Belagond. Um, now, the folks with the little crosses next to their names, of course, are all slated to die um, in uh, in or around uh, the uh, uh, the Dagor Bragalak. Bregalas will die in the Dagor Bragalak, and then Barahir, of course, dies five years later uh, as a fugitive and outlaw, um, as we'll get to in the beginning of the next season, right? Um, but... Um, that's ultimate. So Bregalas, I think it's it's a pretty cool opportunity for ha- for us to have a character whom we can really connect with in um, uh, dying. You know, it's, it's, uh, another human uh, character whose death in the Dagor Bregalak is going to really mean something. We will have seen Bregalas grow up from his uh, perhaps his unruly teenage days in Nargothrond uh, to taking uh, a very positive and uh, really kind of mature, mature in the sense, like humble even, uh, role. Humble in the sense of him not seeking power for himself, his willingness and preparation to step aside for Bari here, uh, when Bari here comes of age. Um, so there can be lots of um, positive feels about Bregoas, who will be, as Marie points out, uh, what, 54? Uh, um... Uh, no, fifty-nine at the time of um, uh, of the Dagor Bragalach. So um, he will be a senior warrior at that point, still fighting for his people. Um, and so his death uh, will be a sign. The most, I think, of the people who will be dying in the Dagor Bragalach here, he is the most impactful uh, one of those from this family. So that's um, that's good. It's good to have a good named death uh, planned here for the Dagor Bragalak from this uh, from this family. Um, I still feel like we need to think about ML Deer a little bit more. I wanted to. I, did, I talk, did I talk about this last time? I think I mentioned this last time that I always felt that ML Deer's story, as she leads the, uh, you know, the the the. As she, as she takes up the leadership of the refugees, right, as they leave uh, Dorthonian, um, while Barahir and Baron and the others stay behind. Um, that's a really cool story, and I want to make sure we don't, we never find out in the Silmarillion what happened to Amaldir, right, what came of that whole thing. Um, and I would really 
I would really like to not lose her somehow. We don't have to make her into a big major character. We don't have to do like a whole episode about MLD and the flight of the refugees, but I would kind of not like to lose her as a character or to lose the opportunity of that story because that seems to me uh, like something we could do. Nick is suggesting maybe an early season six story. You know, Nick? It could. Since we're starting early season six with Bari here in Baron in Dorthonian, that would certainly give us an opportunity uh, to at least kind of close the loop on Emil Deer. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she can reappear in season six. I agree. Now, Rhiannon was wondering if perhaps Emil Deer could be trained as the next wise woman by Andreth while Bari here is being trained to be leader. Um, I wonder, I wonder, Rhiannon, I wonder, <clears throat> as the leadership in the House of Beor is transforming, you know, back, or tra- transforming from, you know, the the wise person and for the last two generations, wise woman who has been leading the house and transitioning from that to the more warrior king focus. Um, how, you know, would there be an impetus to to retain the wise woman position, the wise woman role, um, and that we would have a situation like that where the 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 house would have both the warrior leader and also the wise woman uh, moving forward. Um, I think that's an interesting idea. And if ML Deer is trained in that way, her taking the leadership of the refugees as they go would be all the more natural um, in that way. Uh, yeah. I kind of like that idea. That seems sensible to me. Um, it's a little hard for me to imagine that the House of Bear would just be like, <clears throat> well, we've had enough of wise women, right? We're done with that. Although Andreth is going to be the wise woman for so long, right? I mean, she's going to be the wise woman for, uh, you know, solo for 55 years. Um, and, you know, she will have taken over, essentially, she will have been essentially... Um, you know, groomed and put into the position by Adonel prior to Adonel's death. So, you know, there's going to be a significant majority of the, you know, of the tribe at that point who's never known another wise woman other than Andreth. Um, So it's also possible for me to imagine that the wise woman, like the role that, you know, traditional role of wise woman might even be in the eyes of the rest of the House of Beor come to be like identified with Andreth herself, such that when she dies, like, how can you elect another Andreth, right? There isn't another Andreth. Um, so when she's gone, the role uh, perishes. I could imagine that happening, too. That that would seem to be something I think we could rationalize. But um, anyway, um, I... Um, yeah, Florian is suggesting maybe... Emildir could have a scene with Morwen and Rian, uh, and maybe there's one of them saying goodbye to their fathers. Um, yeah, no, I would. I introducing the 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 uh, the girls there. I think would be it would be important for us to for us to show them at some point. Again, even not just to make them a central focus, but um, but having them appear, I think, would definitely be a really good thing. Okay, awesome. So this is great on the House of Beor. I'm loving this story, and I think this flows really well and and uh, and works works great. So, House of Haleth is a little simpler. All right, we've got uh, 
So remember, it was 340 when Finrod met Bayor in the battle at the stockade, the kind of des, uh, defining early moment, right, when their uh, stockade is uh, attacked by the orcs and Haldad and Haldar are both killed, is 385. So 45 years after the original contact, remember the House of Haleth comes into, you know, the Haladin come, come to Beleriand a little bit later on, um, uh, but they've also been living there fairly peacefully uh, for a bit of a while. Notice that Haleth is born 15 years after Finrod and Beor meet. So this is, and she is 30 at the time of the battle at the stockade. So the, Haleth is not like 16 year old girl who picks up a shield and an ax and starts killing orcs, right? That's not the story that we're looking at here. Um, she is a 30 year old woman at the time of the Battle of the Stockade. So she is already established. And I would think, look, a character with the strength of will of Haleth is not made overnight, right? Like she didn't suddenly transform into the Haleth that we know and love at the Battle of the Stockade or after it, right? So I'm thinking that her role. Um, even prior to the Battle of the Stockade, it should be pretty clear. Uh, I, I think that her younger brother, Haldar, or her twin brother, Haldar, rather, uh, should be um, um, deferring to her. <laughs> Basically, I, I think it should be pretty clear who's kind of wearing the pants in that family. Um, uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that Haldar necessarily, you know is planning to, you know, that like Haleth is going to be the leader of their people someday, but it's not like it's going to shock anybody. I think, I mean, again, she's 30, she's pretty well established as a character, uh, with her, with her people. So, um, um, yeah, yeah. Now what he does have though, uh, of course, as Marie points out is a wife and child, right? So, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 whereas Haleth is unmarried. So, uh, the line would seem prepared to descend through Haldar. But again, I think the situation that is going to emerge, that is that Haleth will be the leader of the people and that she is going to pass the leadership to her nephew Haldan, um, at her death. Um, that I think is again, probably something that is not going to take anybody, uh, by surprise. Um, uh, doesn't necessarily take Haldar's uh, early death to, um, uh, you know, kind of force that to come about. So again, I, I, this is again part of what I'm doing here. I'm, I want to just kind of I want to talk through the story of each house, right? Because um, I'm trying to get my own head around the way that these stories are. And Haleth being 30 at the time of the stockade battle really, um, that's very that's a very impactful thing, right? Again, it would be a totally different story if the stockade battle happened when Haleth was 14, right? Um, if it were really the moment when she emerges out of nowhere uh, unexpectedly as both warrior and leader. If she's 30, that's not going to be unexpected. Nobody's going to be surprised uh, by uh, by that. Um, so... Um, yeah, good. Now, Stephen H. says that he suggests we don't have a, a death date for Haldan uh, there. We have him being born at 380. So he's going to be five uh, when his father and grandfather are killed um, and Haleth takes over. Uh, that obviously is going to prevent any uncertainty about who's in charge. Um, 
Not that, again, not that there's going to ever be much concern about or much question about who's in charge when Holith is in the room, I think. Um, but um, anyway, so, um, uh, so Haldan, being five years old, we don't know exactly when he's going to die. He has to outlive Holith, of course, who's going to live uh, quite some time. We have her dying at the age of 85, um, and I bet she could probably still beat me in an arm wrestling competition at the age of 85. Um, but, um, so Halden obviously needs to outlive that, but of course the Dagor Bragalock is happening in 455, 15 years after Halith's uh, death. Um, so we could have Haldan, uh, uh, being dead by then. Stephen uh, was saying if he's dead by the Dagor Bragalak, uh, Hurin and Huor um, are described as being the wards of Haldir, his son, rather than of Haldan uh, himself. Um, uh, so we can, ha- you know, sure. I mean, I think we've got some flexibility there. And I know I, I know that the Haladin don't fight in the Dagor Bragalak itself. I'm just thinking about the... Um, uh, the, uh, the the times Haldir and Galdor are both going to be dying um, uh, in the near knife or uh, in 472 a bit later on. So, um, yes, lots of deaths around there. Um, but um, I agree. Marie says Hal- um, Haldan doesn't have to be dead in order for Haldir to take wards. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, as long as Haldir is old enough and, you know, we'll see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm not going to worry about that stuff too much because the Haladin are going to drop reasonably far off the map as far as the narrative is concerned after Haleth, right? I mean, if she's dead in 4-4, four, four, I mean, again, they're not fighting in the Dagor Bragalak. Um, and so even in the years right leading up to the Dagor Bragalak, the death of Haleth at 440, that puts her 30 years after. So she still lives and rules for 30 years after the House of Beor moves up to Dorthonian, right? Um, so what Bari here is uh, 34 when Haleth dies, right? So Bari here has been ruling in Dorthonian already for, you know, more than a decade when Haleth dies. So by the time the stories progress to that point, the holiday, I mean, honestly, like Haldan, Haldir, you know, whose ward is Hurin anyway, exactly. Not sure that that's going to matter a huge amount because I don't think that either Haldan or Haldir are going to be getting a whole lot of screen time. Um, in season five. So um, I'm not particularly bothered uh, about that. Um, yeah, as Marie says, they're going to appear briefly in Andreth's story um, and they're going to show up for the double wedding. Yep, that's uh, that's it. And of course, yeah, we will have Hollis's death, death off stage. We don't need to show that on screen, of course. But um, but yes, I mean, I think certainly once Hollis is dead, I don't think... Um, we're going to have, I mean, we'll have people on screen. Like we should know. I mean, it's good for us to work out the genealogy, but as I say, I'm not, I'm not especially troubled about uh, working out too many of the details. Cause it's not really, our story is, is kind of shifting away from them. Then we're going to come back to the house of Haleth later on, but um, not, uh, not so much yet. Okay. House of Hador. Now this is 
easier because it starts a lot later, right? Uh, with Hadar. So um, we have... So now the Battle at the Stockade is 385. So Hador is born prior to that. So you've got this large people who shall at some point be that become the House of Hador. Um, they're there uh, in Estulad, and they send uh, you know they're the elf the elf lords. We have the elf lords kind of converging and visiting and introducing themselves. We had Fingen coming in, um, and Hador volunteering to go with him, uh, right, bringing Hador back to the north. Um. And then he returns for the so. Oh, hang on. Remind me what's what in in what year is the um, uh, the 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 council in Estelan? Three ninety nine. Okay. Oh yeah, there it is. Council right uh, right there in the middle of the screen. Okay, there it is. Thank you. Yes, three ninety nine. Okay, so three ninety nine. Uh, Hador is going to come back. So that puts Hador at age twenty one at the time of the council when he's going to come in and lead the pro elf party, and the people are going to agree to be. Well, the majority of the people, those who remain, uh, are going to agree to become the House of Hador essentially. Uh, that works. Um, that means he needs to leave home at what, 16? 15? Something like that? Go off with Fingen at the age 15 or 16? Um, that puts it at about uh, no later than 3... 95, 394, somewhere around there, 393. Um, uh, so if he goes off in 393 or 394 to the north with Fingen, that's still, that's seven, eight years after the battle at the stockade. So Halith is gone, right? She's been gone for some time. That is going to, that incident will be an item of, uh, of not of legend. It's not like nobody remembers it, but... Um, um, but, you know, it's going to be uh, an important historical moment uh, there and um, definitely an important data point as they're considering whether to stay or not and what to do. Um, OK, um, so. Yeah, that works for me. That works for me. He's gone four or five years and then he comes back and they're going to be super impressed. He's going to he's going to be quite a sight returning clad in Noldor armor and, uh, you know, at the age of 21, um, he is going to cut quite the dashing figure at the council, one has to think. Um, Okay, so he comes in and he has three children then, after leading them into the north, uh, uh, Glorithel, Galdor, and Gondor. Um, Gondor dies in the Dagor Bragalach. And then we've got Hurin and Huor, of course, who are the sons of Galdor, his son. Um, Galdor is born in 412. So... Galdor's born in 412, so that's 13 years after the council. Um, they will have become established. His... Let's see, his father is what, 2234 when Galdor is born, 32 when Gwarthel is born, 34 when Galdor is born. Um, okay, so Galdor obviously is 
you know, so that generation, that second generation there in the House of Hanor are ones who are born in Dor Loman. Um, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, Marie says uh, he starts having kids 10 years after the move so we can have him marry Gildas after the council. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> agreed. Nick says Hodor takes a little while to settle down. He's an adventurer, right? Yeah, so he's one of these guys. I mean, hey, if he's a Tolkien hero, we should have him not even get married until the age of 45, right? And then start having kids <laughs> after that, right? Um, shocking, shocking behavior. I'm looking at you, Theodred. I'm looking at you. Boromir, too. No excuses. But anyway. Um, okay. Uh, great. So, yeah. So Stephen H. is saying uh, Galdor, uh, of course, is supposed to die in an assault on Barad Ithel in uh, 462, um, age 50. So, we, yes, we can save his death uh, for a future season. Um, uh, probably season seven, as you suggest, Stephen, that seems sensible. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Marie says she tried to untolkenify these family trees in that way. Right, exactly. Yeah, I just, it's something I just don't get. I don't understand. Like, what on earth is Theodred doing with himself? Produce heirs! It's not complicated, okay? It's not complicated. When you are the only son of the king, you don't get to age 40 without even marrying, okay? Like, you've got a job, people. Do your job. Um, Aragorn is a different case. I give Aragorn some leeway, Stephen H., because it's not his fault in his defense, right? He was ready to marry at the age of 20, right? Sign him up. He was, uh, I'm sure he'd have uh, been ready to marry and produce an heir with great prejudice. But, you know, there were complications, and uh, I I get it. I get it. Um, um, I'm totally willing to give Aragorn a pass. But, uh, But Theodred, Boromir... No, no, they don't get a, <laughs> they don't get a pass for their dereliction of duty. Um, right, Denethor, Stephen. I know all of them. You look at those family trees and you look at when their children are like how old they were when their children are born, how how long they take when when, when they get married. I mean, it's just it's it's not okay, people. This is pat, bad planning, um, bad planning. Okay, anyway, sorry, distracted. Right, Galdor. Um, so Galdor, Gundor, uh, and. Glorithel all married there. So the double wedding is in 436. That puts um, the double wedding there, between, you know, joining the House of Hador uh, and the uh, House of Haleth, right? Uh, so we've got Harith marrying Galdor, Glorithel marrying Haldir, um, and that's happening at 346. Um Okay, so right there's, look at that, there's Galdor marrying at the responsible age of 24. Uh, yeah, yeah, that uh, that makes sense. That works really well. And there's like our cameo appearance of the Haladin at this point, um, uh, coming in and providing a wife and husband, uh, respectively, for, uh, or husband and wife, I guess, respectively, for uh, the first two children there. Um Hurin and Huor, born at the age at, at born at the age of yeah, born at the age of zero, believe it or not, uh, born at four forty one and four forty four respectively. So this makes Hurin 
14 at the time of the Dagor Bragalak and Huor 11 at the time of the Dagor Bragalak. Um, uh, so, and of course, they're going to be um, in Hawk with, <laughs> sorry, in Ward uh, with the Haladin um, during the festivities in the north there. Okay. Yep. That works. That works. That makes a lot of sense. Um, t- tell me about Gundor's role. Galdor is important as the father of Hurin and Hur, and as the heir of Hador. Um, and so, you know, he's going to be, and like, so Galdor is there to be this sort of representative of, you know, just as we have the Dorthonian generation with, you know, with Barahir being the primary person in the Dorthonian generation and, and, uh, Bregolos is the, the, the kind of, you know, link to, uh, the kind of transition from, uh, the Nargothron folks to the Dorthonian folks. Galdor is going to be the sort of, um, spokesperson for, you know, the kind of face of the uh, Dorloman generation in the House of Hador. Um, Gondor, <laughs> Stephen H. says Gondor is the red shirt who's killed in action, essentially. I mean, he, we, we have him dying in the Dagor Bragalak, of course. Um, his role is to be Balrog fodder. I can live with that. I can live with that. Yeah, we're going to want Balrogs. Uh, we're going to want Balrogs on the Western Front there, driving Fingon's forces back. Um, so, yeah, we're going to need some named folks to die. Uh, Gondor, son of Hador, seems a fine candidate for that role. Um, yep, yep. Um, right, Florian is asking, what does Galdor do after the Bragalock? Um Mourn. And man, uh, uh, essentially, where he's going to die seven years after the Dagor Bragalak. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, well, he exactly as Mary says, he's Lord of Dor, uh, he's Lord of Dorloman by then. He has been for five years already. Hador dies in 450. Um, so Hador dies 14 years after the double wedding. Um, which means Hador does live to see Hurin and Huor both born. So he will, um, you know, we can have, um, let's see, when do we think Hurin and Huor get sent off? At what ages would they be sent off to live as wards with the Haladin? Um, I, um, yeah, before the battle, definitely. Um, but that's uh, but that's fine. But they would it be after the death of Hador? Maybe like four fifty ish. In four fifty, Hurin like at the death, the time of the death of Hador, Hurin is going to be nine, and Huor is going to be six. Um, could there even be? I don't want to. We've already played the, um, you know. A foretelling is upon me card several times this season, so I'm not wanting to go there. But even without any foresight, uh, any mystical foresight, that things are 
they will know that. So when does fin, uh, when does uh, Fingolfin's big push start? What's the date date wise? Um, when is so? I mean, because of course they're right there with Fingolfin, right? So um, they're going to know. They're going to be hearing about what's you know, what's sort of planned, what's happening. So we're at 440 to 445. Great, that's perfect. So in other words, war is in the air, right? I mean, the Bragalak is still going to take people by surprise, right? But, um, uh, but um, uh, yeah, so that's, um, that's going to, that, that's going to take people by surprise. Uh, but still, like, that war is coming is not going to take anybody by surprise. Certainly not the Lord of Dorlomen serving under Fingolfin in Dorlomen, right? So, um, so yeah, I could see that happening. Hador dies. Hurin and Huar are both there for the funeral of Hador. And then soon after that, 450, 451, um, you know, 451, maybe Hurin turns 10. Um, Huar is 7. And that's when they he decides. So it's not just a let's protect the kids in case we all die kind of thing. It's not. It's not about that. Um, but I, I would think maybe that would also have a kind of impact uh, on their thinking, essentially. Um, so, yeah, okay, that kind of works for me. Um, that that as just story wise, I'm trying to picture. I'm trying to. I'm trying to imagine Galdor here and what his uh, what his thinking and what his role is. So, okay. All right. Awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. I think I am happy with our genealogies, our time frame, uh, the narratives here, the kind of characters that we're following. Um, uh, yeah, Florian, exactly. It makes a lot of sense to send his kids to his sister, right? Glorithel is down there in Brethil, um, so they would go and live with Auntie. Um Auntie Glorithel and Uncle Haldir uh, down in Brethel, and they would be, um, you know, they would be learning other things. They would be observing. You know, there's 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 a lot that they would have to gain from the Haladin. Um, this is now. Wait, hang on a second. Let me remind myself of Haleth dies in 440. Okay, so Haleth has been dead for ten years at that point when they go down. Um, so um, yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. And this, this helps to solve, like, the thinking of that ward question. Haldir does not have to be the lord. Um, I mean, he would still be, like, even if Haldan, his father, were still to be the lord at that time, um, uh, at, at 440 or 441, whenever they go down, it still makes sense for them to go and live in the house of Glorithel, you know, their aunt, um, uh, and Haldir, which is not, like, going to be you know, super far removed from Haldan. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, we could, if we chose, have Haldan die around then, if he died um, okay, somewhere in the neighborhood of 450. Um, he would still be, what, 70 uh, when he died. So that's uh, not... Um, that's not bad, but, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I agree, Nick. There's a lot. Um, uh, Huron does need uh, to learn a lot in order to be the mightiest human ever, right? So he has definitely some exploits uh, to uh, perform uh, down in Brethel as a child uh, in order to establish his prodigious status uh, in the history books there. Um, there you know, there are only so many humans who get, it, who, who get a superlative, uh, and Huron is one of them. Um, okay, cool. So let's move on to the frame story. Hooray! Okay. So questions that I had last time. My biggest question about the frame was how much of a failure is are Gandalf's efforts in Harad going to be? So the concept here, remember as we were saying, lo, these many months ago now, is that we have Gandalf as in Canus going down to Harad and attempting to... So this is about... Um, what's that date that we had, Marie, for the, what we were thinking, the date that we're thinking of for this? It's fairly early on. Um, Pre-War of the Ring. Um, 2951, somewhere around there. Yeah, so 70 years before the War of the Rings. Right. Right, 70 years prior to the War of the Rings. So, um, yeah, so we're like, so that puts us, what, seven years after The Hobbit? Right? Um, uh, something like that. Okay, yeah, eight years-ish, right? A year before Aragorn meets Arwen. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, that that that's fine. Great. So Bilbo is back in the Shire and he's settling down and being eccentric, uh, much more eccentric than he was before. Um, and Gandalf is wandering around doing his gray wizard thing. Now, indulge me in a brief sidebar uh, with apologies to those of you who have been following exploring the Lord of the Rings, because I've been thinking a lot about this frame when I've been, it's been all I can do not to break out into speculations about the Inconus frame, uh, in our exploring the Lord of the Rings discussions over the last two weeks, because what we've been talking about in exploring the Lord of the Rings in the context of our discussion of Gandalf and Saruman's confrontation as reported by Gandalf in the council of Elrond, um, We've been talking about what the wizardly colors mean, what exactly it means to be the brown or the gray or the white or the blue. Uh, and uh, in class last, just a couple of days ago on Tuesday, we were specifically discussing the paragraph in which Gandalf responds to Saruman um, saying that he has heard such, be- such speeches before and isn't impressed. Um, so... Um, uh, now here are the two things. So first of all, let me just, I'm not going to explain in depth, but here's my brief synopsis of the conclusions that I was drawing in exploring the Lord of the Rings about the colors. Um, after our discussion and analysis of the, the Radagast scene and the Saruman scene, the conclusion, um, that I was, um, um, uh, the the conclusion that I was uh, coming to is that the colors, it's not a rank, right? It doesn't, you know, it's not like a mark of seniority. It doesn't work like karate belts. It 
is instead like a job description. It is a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a designation of a role. It's not a, a rank. This fits very well with the things that Gandalf suggests about Saruman and the things that he says when he returns as the white, when he comes back and says, you know, in, you know, I, I am the white now. Um, you know, I am Saruman, Saruman as he should have been. A lot of people take that to suggest like, he's like gotten a promotion basically, right? You know, Saruman has been canned, right? Saruman abdicated as the white wizard. Gandalf has moved up the ranks and he's now the white. Um, and of course, the fact that this correlates with his dying and returning more powerful uh, uh, certainly does seem to play along with the idea that the white wizard is really powerful and the gray wizard was less powerful. Um, but that's not, I think, what it means. I think what it means is again, it's about a description of a role that to be the white wizard is to have a particular job description. Indeed, the job description that Gandalf claims for himself later on. I was the enemy of Sauron, right? His role, as Aragorn says in the last discussion of the captains uh, after the Battle of Pelennor Field, um, Gandalf is like, you know, he's like, we should follow, we should continue. He is the one, he is the, the one who is leading uh, the anti-Sauron effort. That was Saruman's job. That was the job that Saruman failed to do, that he not only, he first neglects, because remember, that was his area of study. What, the arts of the enemy himself and of the rings of power, because his job as white wizard and the reason he was the chair of the council is uh, because his job was to be the, um, um, the anti-Sauron person. Right. Which, of course, makes ultimately his failure the more obvious and profound. Um, Radagast as the brown is not called that because he's lesser, not called. It's again, it's not a rank thing. Um, Saruman does look down on him, but that tells you more about Saruman than it tells you about Radagast. Um, as the brown, he clearly has an academic specialty as well, right? His area of study, his area of engagement is birds and beasts, right? He is the friend of birds and beasts, um, and uh, and and changes of, uh, of 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 shape and of hue. That also apparently is part of his bag. Um, so we spent some time, you know, figuring out what's the job of the gray, right? What does it mean? Like when Gandalf the gray is doing his job. And it's also clear, by the way, that Gandalf, from the time that he begins to discover and suspect that the ring of that Bilbo's ring is the ring of power, or at least is very important. <clears throat> um, when Saruman says to Gandalf that he's wandering about the lands and um, involving himself in every business, whether it belongs to him or not, one of the things that we were suggesting that um, Saruman is kind of implying there is that Gandalf is stepping onto his own turf. Like, this, there's there's some academic turf issues there, right? Um, you were kind of taking it upon yourself to do some white wizard stuff there, weren't you, right? When you found the, like, the ring of power and you did, like, that's kind of, that's totally my academic specialty, Right. And you did not share this information and you did that yourself. Come on now. Right. Um, so but of course, the counter argument from which Gandalf doesn't make at the time, of course, would be, yeah, uh, somebody had to do it because you've been neglecting your job as you've been holding up here in Isengard. You've not been doing the job um, of the White Wizard for some time now. Um, somebody had to do it. So, yeah, I've been doing some I've been picking up some of your job, too. Thank you very much. Um, 
but that's clearly not his job, right? Um, uh, so, um, anyway, now, what is his job then? Well, wandering about the lands and involving himself in lots of business does seem to be part of his job. One of the premises that I would offer that, I, that seems to me most clear, Gandalf, what Gandalf does with the, in the Shire, and I don't just mean with Bilbo and Frodo, I mean with the old Took and elsewhere, right? I think that we have to assume that's part of his job. Also, what we hear of him doing elsewhere, right? Hanging out with Faramir and making him a wizard's pupil, for instance, right, comes to mind. Um, the kind of influence that Gandalf has roaming about the lands, having no home, but being known to many people. Um, if Radagast's job description, we don't really know his job description exactly, but if his job description is focused primarily on birds and beasts, Gandalf's seems to be on people, right, to be dealing with and interacting with. You think about what he does in The Hobbit, right? Both of what he gets Bilbo into, but what he does with Thorin um, to go around and to encourage and to to kindle hearts, right? That's his that's his role. Um, So uh, this all that this. So that's one thing that I wanted to say as preamble to talking about Gandalf's role in the frame story, because remember, so this is, if this is 70 years before the Lord of the Rings, this is before he's really focused in on Bilbo's ring. He's already, you know, a shadow's already fallen on his heart about that, but he's, um, he's okay. Um, you know, he doesn't really suspect yet. Um, so he's, in other words, he's not yet like really doing much in the way of white wizard stuff. Right. He's still mostly doing the gray wizard job at that point. Um, and he. Um, um, uh, yeah. So anyway, so he's um, uh, he's going about the lands and doing this stuff. So I think at the time that we have this frame story happening, he should be still doing mostly gray wizard type things. Um, uh, now, Stephen H. Saruman is mentioned as going amongst men, but he hasn't for a long time. He has been um, in Isengard with the exception of some research trips uh, for quite some time now. Um, uh, Saruman has ceased to involve himself uh, in, you know, the affairs of others or, you know, like has ceased, has ceased wandering around what Treebeard says we would call a long time ago. Right. So um, Gandalf, for some time, has been doing the wandering about. And it's clear that Gandalf does go among mortals. Um, his friendship with Aragorn shows that his um, relationships in Gondor, both positive and negative, suggest that. Um, and even even his going among hobbits suggests it, certainly that he doesn't just like dedicate himself to elves. Uh, but anyway, OK, so. So that's one thing. Here's the other half of my preamble. The other half of my preamble, and this is where, boy, like on Tuesday, I could barely restrain myself talking about the Inconus plot because we got to a line in the Lord of the Rings that one of those, this has happened to me so many times in exploring the Lord of the Rings where I sort of realize I've never really taken this line seriously. Um, And it's in Gandalf's response uh, when he says, I want to read it to make sure I don't screw it up. Um, uh, 
you know, Saruman, I have heard speeches of this kind before, but only in the mouths of emissaries sent from Mordor to deceive the ignorant. And the very sensible question that someone swiftly asked when we were discussing that paragraph was, when did he hear that? When has Gandalf heard speeches such as that out of the mouths of emissaries sent from Mordor in order to deceive the ignorant? If we think about it, where is where is Sauron sending emissaries? So Sauron has returned to Mordor and set himself up, right? He has declared himself in Mordor um, publicly. He's going to send emissaries. For instance, we know he has sent an emissary uh, to the Lonely Mountain, right, to Dan. But the emissary to Dan does not make a speech of that kind, right? He doesn't make a recruitment speech. He, he offers friendship and an alliance, right? But he doesn't do the, like, a new power is rising and we can join with that power. That's not, um, you know, it's true friends will prosper. That's not exactly the speech that is given there. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the... So, um, okay. So where is he, where is Sauron sending emissary? You think about it. Sauron, there's nobody in all of Eriador for Sauron to send an emissary to. I mean, there's almost no peoples for him to send emissaries to. I mean, you could maybe just imagine him sending emissaries to the Dunlendings, but that's really far away, right? And that's kind of Saruman's jurisdiction anyway. Um, I doubt it. I doubt it. But certainly nowhere north of Dunlin. What, what, what is it? Send them to Bree? Right? I mean, no. There's just, there's nobody. There's no nation of people to whom you would send an emissary. Um, so he's not gonna, uh, he's not gonna send them anywhere around, uh, around there. Um, he's not gonna send, like, where else is he gonna send them? Lothlorien? No. I don't think so. Rohan? No, we know he hasn't sent emissaries to Rohan. Horse thieves, yes. Emissaries, no. Um, is he going to send them to Gondor? Um, no, he's not going to send emissaries to Gondor to try to recruit them, right? Um, the Bardings of Dale, he sent an emissary there, but again, it's... So, I mean, maybe he could have sent emissaries to, like, the men, the woodmen, like the Bjornings... Maybe he sent an emissary to the Bjornings to feel them out. But the list is very small of, like, people to the west, uh, you know, like, from the Anduin over. The list is very small of possible places to whom Sauron could have sent emissaries. Ergo, the most logical place, if you're Sauron, you're declaring yourself in Mordor again, what's your priority number one? Try to recruit people? Like, try to con- 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 recruit the Dunlendings or the Bjornings? Uh, no, that's not priority one. That's way down the priority list. Priority one is to reestablish relationships with those nations that used to worship you as a god hundreds of years ago, right? That's got to be priority number one. They're your military base, and you need to whip that military base into shape again. And that's a process. It's not enough just to reveal yourself and say, come worship me again, my peoples. These peoples in question don't know you anymore, Right. They're going to need some convincing. Um, And this, of course, 
again, I've been thinking about the Gandalf frame uh, in every class I've taught uh, for uh, the last couple weeks. In last week's session, which was the final session that I did on Morgoth's Ring, we were looking at some of the myths transformed sections, the very last section of the book, of course, because it was the last class. Um, when, in particular, some of those passages in Morgoth's Ring, when Tolkien is talking about Sauron and Sauron's motivations, and specifically comparing and contrasting Sauron and Morgoth. And um, one of the things, of course, that Tolkien emphasized, which really kind of struck home when I was reading it this time, was that Sauron had a, had a job of work to do. He doesn't just have to recruit men. He certainly doesn't have to just, like, roll out his banner and everybody flocks to be in his armies. He doesn't even just have to recruit people and have them come in his armies. He has to corrupt people in order to get them to come in his armies. As Tolkien says, it takes a lot of doing to bring humans to the place where they are willing and happy to march side by side with an army of orcs, right? I mean, that's not trivial. You can claim to be the ancestral god of their people, and that's fine, but they're going to see the orc armies, right? Um, And... um, they're going to um, they're going to suspect that um, uh, they're going to suspect that they might be the bad guys <laughs> if they join with the orcs. I mean, Tolkien was very clear: humans have to be like their wills have to be corrupted. They can't be dominated. Sauron does not have the power to override the individual wills of every human in the armies that march with him. Um, so he has to bring them in. He has to make bring them to a cultural point where they are comfortable, willing to march with orcs and consider orcs their companions and allies. And that's going to take some doing. In other words, just the point is there's a job of work. There's a job of work that needs to be done in order to reestablish his position in all of, you know, of, of, of Khand and Rune and Harad and Umbar and everywhere else that he can reach. Right. Again, it's not to say that it's an enormous uphill struggle and there might be some places that are readier to his hand than others, but, but there's work to be done. Um, and, not all that much time to do it in. I mean, some notice, of course, there's still more than a generation uh, of men to, to to come, you know, who but but he's got to start to work to create the circumstances where there is not just an army. He doesn't need allies. He needs servants and he needs servants who are willing to do the work that he needs them to do. So that is. um uh that is the um, uh, that's the sort of political situation, Sauron's situation at this time. So yeah, so when I was reading that sentence about Gandalf saying that he has heard this kind of speech before out of the mouths of emissaries sent from Mordor to deceive the ignorant, I'm like, which ignorant, and where did you hear this? And to me, the most logical answer to that question is in the south. Right. As in Kanos, um, we don't know anything about what Gandalf did in the south. All we know is that he went there and he went there 
significantly enough, long enough to have a name in the South, just as he has a name Gandalf in the North. And remember, his name in the North is his name and his reputation from, you know, Arid Lewin to the Iron Hills, right? The whole northern um, bit uh, of uh, Middle Earth. And um, he just says, this is my name in the South. He, he parallels his name in Canus in the South with his name Gandalf in the North. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm suggesting we have to make Gandalf as well known and to spend as much time uh, in Hared as he did in the North. But the passage with the names, that that's the parallel, right? That is established there. So he must have spent some time down. So anyway, so I was like, the whole time, I'm like, I want to talk about the frame story. So, um, so with all this setup and context and thinking about this, I want to think about this in more detail. What are we going to do? And again, my initial question here was how much we, on the one hand, we know this has to kind of be a failure. Well, so th there are a few options, right? Obviously, we can't say Gandalf, like, brings the Haradrim around, right? And so the Haradrim reject Sauron because they're not gonna. We know this, right? We know they're not gonna reject Sauron. So on some level, his efforts in Harad have to be a failure. So my question was how much of a failure, right? Um, and that is... Uh, it could be a complete failure. Um, it, uh, it could be sort of a like partial success. Um, uh, essentially like we could show him succeeding in like a little pocket of Harid, which doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, move the needle all that much, uh, when it comes to the time of the war of the ring. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and yes, as Florian says, and this is very true, um, uh, Florian says there is no the Haradrim, right? Um, uh, Gandalf could bring thousands around and there'd still be more than enough room left for Sauron. Yeah, exactly. So this is one of the things that we need to be thinking about, namely... What is Gandalf's plan? Before we, to some extent, before we can answer the question, to what extent does he fail, we need to answer the question, what's he trying to do exactly, right? What is Gandalf's purpose down there? Um, uh, so I, so see, Stephen H., I, I resist this idea. I resist the idea that the Haradrim have been in Sauron's pocket since 2900, um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Again, that simplifies matters too much. It is a huge area of land which is going to have multiple nations in it, all of which have different cultures and traditions, which are going to be related by this time now, related to Sauron differently. Um, I think that... Um, we And we can show some of those differences. We can show... And again, I think that there is still going to be a lot of work to be done. Because, um, you know, if Sauron could declare himself in Mordor and immediately snap up an army from Harad and Rune, right? Instantly. I mean, like, they're all like, yes, master, we are here. We've been waiting for you to return, right? Um, we're, you know, we're already enlisted. Um, why would he even need to wait so long to, to 
invade Condor, right? He could have done it generations ago. Um, no, I think that there's a reason why he's taking as long as he, why he's building his armies for so long. Um, th- he's not been there, right? He's not been, um, uh, right. Marie was just asking that too. Then why wait, um, uh, why wait, uh, 70 years? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of multiple generations of people in multiple, multiple different places. Sauron is playing a long game here and his long, uh, the end point of his long game is when he can have large, loyal, I don't want to say brainwashed armies, but like, again, armies of people who are comfortable going to war and considering orcs their allies. Um, that's, uh, that's a non-trivial undertaking. Um, so, uh, yeah, and as Florian says, Sauron isn't even really ready during the, the, the War of the Ring. Not as ready as he wants to be. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right, as Marie said, he might be an ancestral god, but do they believe he's the same guy and he's really back? Or is this an imposter? I mean, yeah, somebody's saying, hey, I'm the god of your ancestors. I mean, that takes a lot of believing, as the gaffer might say. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I I think there's a lot of opportunities here. So, okay. So back to Gandalf. So what's Gandalf's plan? Exactly. I think that Gandalf's plan... Well, the best thing that we have to judge by as far as like the kinds of plans that Gandalf does have in these ways, I think there are going to be two things happening. On the one hand, he is going to see the strategic need, right? There will be some just pure calculation on Gandalf's part. Some of it will simply be motivated by, I would like to attempt to undermine Sauron's efforts in this region. And if I can find a strategic way to uh, attempt to influence some of the Haradrim for good, maybe I can at least delay Sauron further, if not, you know, help to hamper uh, his efforts significantly. So on the one hand, I do think um, that uh, uh, he is going to be thinking in strategic terms, but he's Gandalf. I don't think that's the only way that he's thinking as well. I think that he is going to be traveling through the South. He's going, I mean, at some point, right, he will have been traveling around the South. We know he went there. Um, And he will be seeing the people in the South and he will have pity on them. I think that a lot of, just like he had pity on the hobbits and their suffering during the fell winter. um, uh, This is part of what motivates him to get involved uh, with um, with hobbits as well as seeing their suffering during the uh, no sorry the long winter not the fell winter uh, during during the long winter um, this is one of the reasons that he starts getting con- connected with hobbits at all um, and um, anyway so I think um, uh, compassion basically. Um, yeah, so uh, Nick says he needs to be pretty stationary for most of the season if we're going to have useful characters in the frame story. Oh, yeah, no, no. So, Nick, I'm not suggesting, don't worry, I'm not suggesting that we're trying, that we show like a longitudinal Gandalf project, 
right? That's that's not it at all. What I'm wondering is what is the backstory of the frame? That's what I'm thinking about right now. Um, do we have him showing up in Harad? Not for the first time, but like, is his relationship with the people here in this town new? Um, you know, he comes in, he... Maybe he chooses it strategically again. He's doing he's doing strategy and he, he identifies an opportunity in a particular time and place, right, to have an impact. So he goes there and um, he. Uh, so it's but it's kind of out of nowhere for as far as the local residents are concerned, he's coming in out of nowhere or we could do it another way. We could have he's been there before. He's traveled in hard before. And he's always traveling around. Right. Um, just as he wanders through and he checks in on the Shire every few years. Right. Um, so, too, he could be wandering down in Herod and there could be a, several places where he's known. Right. Uh, so our frame could begin with Gandalf returning uh, to this place, town, city where he's known and having people be like, oh, it's in Connus. We thought you would never come back. You know, we thought you were gone for good. Um, and he learns what's going on and uh, and is alarmed, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, Marie, Hobbit children r- running up and shouting, uh, well, it wouldn't be G for grand, would it? It would be um, um, I for incandescent. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, they, they, you know, like begging for fireworks. Exactly. Um, and it is possible, Nick, that he wouldn't have been there within living memory. Uh, but if there's like, knowledge of who Inkanus is, right? That's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Florian. Yeah, that kind of thing would work for me um, uh, to um, uh, to be thinking that, you know, so Florian is suggesting he might have been visiting a tribe in Harad for a long time, um, having a uh, like a a a a, a took family esque relationship, right, with a a, a family or a tribe uh, there in Harad. Uh, but Florian is suggesting maybe he went there less and less after Dol Guldur. Uh, Dol Guldur, Gollum, and the Shire became really central to his plan. So he's been in the north a lot lately, um, and so he's not been there. So his things have kind of run to seed in his absence, right? Um, uh, that would be uh, that would be interesting, I think. Um, Exactly, Rihanna. Not the Inconos who was responsible for so many quiet Haradrim children going off into the blue for mad adventures. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, some of the old timers could remember him. There could be a Bilbo, right? A Bilbo, like a, a, somebody who is now, you know, middle-aged, uh, but who remembers, you know, his, his particularly excellent fireworks, uh, you know, from his grandfather's uh birthday parties kind of thing again right you know that 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 same kind of relationship bilbo does not know gandalf right doesn't remember it barely remembers gandalf but he knows his name he does have this childhood memory of gandalf but he's never met him before right so that's kind of the other model that i'm thinking of again either like gandalf doing covert ops in Hared and coming him out of nowhere, coming in out of nowhere, or um, there being essentially a Bilbo figure. Now, the thing that's attractive to me about the Bilbo, there are two things that are attractive to me about the Bilbo idea. One is I really do like the idea that Gandalf as in Canus has established himself over a significant amount of time in Hard. that this is not like 
he's not just this late in the game, you know, 70 years before the War of the Ring being like, oh, yeah, I should probably look into Harad, right? Maybe somebody should not neglect Harad anymore. I mean, that's... Um, I kind of don't like that approach, the idea that he's been there and he's been trying to keep an eye on things uh, as much as he can seems to me to fit a little bit better. The other thing um, that I really like uh, is, Nick, I'm thinking about some of the things that you have been sort of suggesting or requesting in uh, in your discussions of the frame story uh, on the discussion boards, namely that we have a focused small number of characters. Should there be a Bilbo-esque character, right? Someone who is an approximate kind of parallel to Bilbo. Um, A single person who would remember in Kanus, uh, you know, at least know the name um, and have some sort of awe and respect for him um, and therefore be willing to kind of take him in and explain to him what's been going on and so be Gandalf's source for learning about what's happening in the region um, and his ally, perhaps, in attempting to do whatever it is that he attempts to do. Um, that would focus our characters within the frame uh, pretty significantly. Um so um, anyway, so that's uh, that's one of the reasons why I kind of lean towards that. I certainly think that Nick is very sensible in his arguments about this, that uh, we want the frame. We don't want the frame to be, you know, an epic storyline with a cast of thousands. We, we want to keep it contained um, and keeping it focused on a very small, having a very small number of people appearing on screen during the. Uh, during the frame seems certainly like a very sensible way uh, to um, to handle that. Um, yeah, and Marie was saying you know, that Hakan was arguing for that too. Dave, go ahead. I was going to say, but you could you you could you could do um, uh, you could do some kind of like like just maybe the opening scene of the frame where you have a lot of establishing shots and you're setting everything up. Mm-hmm. That might be where you could very quickly sort of like. Whether whether they're they say one word to Gandalf or they're just in the background, but you could introduce this notion that Harad is uh, like a bizarro hobbiton, right? Um, right. Just have a lot of like Easter eggs, like you know, wait, I think that reminds me of that character, you know, like like even even allusions to like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. You could have some like <laughs> yeah, I just I like the I love this idea of Harad as the bizarro Shire. Yes, uh, the alternative Gandalf, Shire. Gandalf's, where Gandalf's just running the Gandalf playbook. He's got exactly the same playbook. <laughs> he's running it here. He's got. He's finding all the same people. Um, but then maybe only one or two of them are actually like, you know, actively participating characters in the season. But but I think I think you could invest a little time in the uh, in the first first um, uh, in the you know the initial scene, like establishing that like this should this should look if you if you know the book. Um, if you know the books and if you've watched the Peter Jackson trilogy, this should look familiar. You've seen right. this before. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, 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 that really appeals to me too. I like that a lot. Um, and, um, um, and again, I, to me, this, I like the idea of kind of personalizing this a little bit more for Gandalf, right? Just as he says he would hate to see, you know, the Tooks and Brandy Bucks and the ridiculous Bagginses enslaved by Sauron. Well, he's not going to want to see these people enslaved by Sauron either, right? So partly it's strategic, yes. But I think it's not going to be just calculated. 
on Gandalf's part. He's also going to have built a relationship. As you say, he's going to have run the Gandalf playbook there. Um, yeah. uh, you know, established actually, himself actually, as friend and advisor, fireworks maker. That's a, that's a good point too. Like that could, that could lend some additional weight to that when he says that, you know, 10 seasons from now. Right. Um, right. Um, like, like we could, we could actually, we could turn that from kind of, I think probably a lot of us, when we read it, we imagine it as a hypothetical, right? Or, or maybe you're maybe you're imagining the scouring of the Shire when you think about it, if you've previously read the book. But like, we could actually leverage that into like, you know, Gandalf's actually he's seen that side of it. He's watched that happen. Yes, and he's like really desperate to prevent it from happening this time around. Yes, he has seen what it looks like. He know, and he has seen a community that he has also loved and been connected to be enslaved. Yeah. 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 No, I, I love that. I love that. I think that's really cool. Um, uh, okay. So now, so Stephen cover was asking, he says, one of the biggest issues is what would cause him to leave just as things are getting dark. Um, does he think things are better than they are or does something cause despair in him to give up? Well, that's why I do. I think that this season has to end in failure. I mean, I think that the season needs to end with the community becoming enslaved, essentially. Um, um, he's not going to abandon them until there's no other option. And the no other option in question would almost have to be the community itself turning against him, right? Um mm-hmm. They're not going to be forcibly enslaved. They're not going to be like, we're not talking about ending the the frame season with like the people of the, uh, you know, the, the, as you say, the bizarro Hobbiton being dragged off in chains, right? We're talking about them putting up a statue to Sauron in the middle of the, uh, of the, of the square at the end of the season, right? Them, them choosing to, uh, uh, th- them choosing Sauron over Gandalf and, and Gandalf having to flee, um, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, like for his own safety. Um, that's where I would a, see the, the, the frame ending. There should be a really, there should be a really, there should be a grim conversation at the end. Gandalf, Gandalf, like catching a glimpse of, I don't know, some, some young person he's befriended who's joined the Sauron youth. Yeah. Um, and Gandalf sees him and says, what are you doing? And, and, you know, the kid has some justification for why he has to do this to help his family or something. And Gandalf's all bummed. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. I love this idea. Yeah. I can see a few different possibilities here, right? One would be that, that, so we could mitigate Gandalf's failure by having like the Bilbo parallel character, um, that he comes in and really connects to first. We could have like that one guy, him succeed with that one guy, right? Um, but you know that guy has to also flee town uh, before uh, before the you know at the end. Or we could have him fail even with so like the Bilbo parallel character is the one who like you know exposes him and casts him out at the end. Um, uh, that I think is uh, or, or Stephen, I was right. Or Plan C. Uh, his friends are killed off. Yes, that would also, which uh, I don't want to, um, I don't want to discount uh, bloodshed and battle at the end because that will be parallel with the Dagor Bragalak, right? That will be, I mean, we will have two frame episodes that are the frames for the Dagor Bragalak 
uh, episodes at the end. Um, uh, so yeah. Um, yeah, Nick, I, I hear you. Nick is saying that having them killed off feels a little bit like a storytelling cop out. Well, it certainly could be, right? I mean, if we if we have things going swimmingly, right? Like, and you know, they're like, yeah, we agree with Inkanus. We're gonna change things. We're gonna, and then they all like die, and then Gandalf's like, well, okay, <laughs> back to the drawing board, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's 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 not a great story if we do it that way, um, but. Um, but basically, to, you know, to have them, you know, I don't think it would necessarily be a bad story if Gandalf's inspiration and encouragement to them leads like they sort of take that and begin a rash adventure. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe the Bilbo parallel character like speaks out against, you know, and tries to and maybe, you know, maybe Gandalf is like, I'm not sure this, you know. I'm not sure you're we're ready for this. I'm not sure this is the move, but his his friend and ally is like, no, we're going to I'm not going to let this happen to my people. So he stands up to defy uh, the mouth of Sauron or whoever we have be the central bad guy. I think we need a central bad guy um, in our frame. And then he gets he gets killed. Right. You know, or like captured and tortured to death or whatever. Um, uh, That wouldn't be so much of a cop out, um, uh, especially if it kind of looks again, because and it's that might be a little too on the nose as far as the parallels are concerned. Right. We don't want to make uh, the Bilbo character too Fingolfin ish, you know, in his uh, final resolutions or or ultimate fate. Um, but anyway, I'm just I'm just thinking about I'm not suggesting that we kill them off scene. I'm only saying it is possible that the we kill them off thing could be done in a way that would fit our season uh, and our frame without just being a, um, being a cop out, as you say. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, but I, I do think a parallel of some sort is certainly desirable. We've generally done that. Um, in our frames, it doesn't have to be, I don't want to make it too laborious, the parallel, you know, um, uh, but we do want to have some, you know, we, we do want the flow of the story, the flow of the drama to be, uh, sort of parallel. So, so what do we think? Gandalf's ally turns against him. Gandalf's ally gets out of Dodge at the end. So Gandalf's failure is less than complete, but still pretty much a failure as far as the town is concerned. Uh, Or um, Gandalf's ally dies at the end. Those seem to be the three major options. Um, Suggestions? Okay, Rhiannon likes the betrayal. Uh, Stephen H. likes him getting out of Dodge, escaping... Um, Stephen Cover likes him sticking with Gandalf too. Okay, yeah, I'm I vote. Fi- a, I, I vote a mix. A mix. Someone betrays. Someone betrays him. Gets some other people killed, and Gandalf sneaks out the survivor. Right. The survivor can. We can put him somewhere. I mean, it's okay for him. He doesn't have to die. It's okay for him to survive. Uh, Gandalf could deposit him. Heck, he could deposit him in Gondor, couldn't he? Yes. 
he could deposit him in like Dal Amroth or something like that. Um, or in Minas Tirith, yeah, to uh, to to um, meet up with Thorongil. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. Um, well, yeah, Stephen H is saying that the opportunity to murder some people. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if there's more than one, so like there's the ally, and then the ally can have a friend and the friend, so we can have we can we can kind of have it both ways. Okay. All right. <laughs> that could work. <laughs> why, why, why tell one story when we can tell two? It's okay, Nick. Don't worry. It's not like we're just going to pro- pro- proliferate characters endlessly or something like that. That wouldn't happen. Well, also, we're going to kill off a bunch of them at the end, so there won't be that money left. True. It'll be. It'll be <laughs> I don't think the body, the like survivor count at the end, is the chief concern so much as number of characters that we build along the way. Um, yeah. But okay, all right, fine. So. The situation that Gandalf returns to, so this was the anti, well, not the anti, that makes it sound like it's opposite to, which it isn't. Um, this is the alternate, let's say it that way. This is the alternative Hobbiton, right, in Harad. Um, he comes, Inkanus comes back into town and the uh, the Haradrim children are hoping for fireworks. And um, um, he meets the, the Bilbo character who might have uh, childhood memories of meeting him. Um, and... Um, uh, they, um, he meets, yeah, so he meets the Bilbo character and the Bilbo and, and he, there would be, maybe there would even be a kind of like the parallel to the, uh, sort of like the parallel to the Tooks, like the, the sort of, uh, you know, uh, rambunctious young Haradrim, uh, who had been encouraged by Gandalf, uh, and, and, uh, you know, whose hearts had been kindled by him previously, um, and those of their forefathers. Um, so this gives us an opportunity day for more than one person, right? We have the like the primary point of contact. So when I say the Bilbo parallel, I don't mean we don't mean an exact parallel, right? Um, we could very well have like there could be two, there could be two bro- like like a brother and a sister from the beginning, for instance, uh, or two brothers or two sisters or whatever. Um, uh, okay, so uh, fine, and then one can betray him and one can not. Um, so that way we have, you know, an internal betrayal too, which is particularly heartbreaking. Um, okay. And he comes in and, but what's been happening? Well, Sauron has declared himself, right? So there's recruiting going on. Now, what's Sauron's plan? Sauron's plan is going to, he's going to declare himself to be God. But again, remember his long-term, he's not like out there saying, enlist now, join the army of Sauron as we march in the West. Cause it's not what he's doing. Right. Instead, his what's phase one of Sauron's return to power plan? Right. Phase one is going to be I'm going to send emissaries out with speeches intended to deceive the ignorant. Right. That's his plan. So he's going to say, I'm going to I'm going to go out. I'm going to like the the message to them is going to be a new power is arising. Right. It's proven friends will grow as it grows. He's going to be given, and, and not exactly the speech of Saruman, but, you know, again, that's going to be the thing that Gandalf is referring to when he says that to Saruman. Um, yes, Nick, exactly. The cult of Sauron has to gain power in Harad. So it's not just going to be like a political recruiter coming in. It's going to be a priestly figure coming in, calling them back to their ancient uh, religion. Right to to revive the cult of Sauron um, uh, from ancient times. Sauron the Great has returned, uh, and uh, 
you know, again, the new power is rising. Um, and there would be incentives for them to join. Now, several people, I believe, had been suggesting, um, uh, uh, had been suggesting that um, the mouth of Sauron himself could be the bad guy here in the frame, that he could be the one doing the recruiting. I quite like that. Uh, the mouth of Sauron seems a really good candidate to me for this sort of role. We don't want a Nazgul, I think. We could have a Nazgul. Um, a Nazgul would be on the table, but the mouth of Sauron is a little bit more... a little more apt for an opponent in this regard, I think. I mean, yeah. I like the mouth of Sauron better. Um, first of all, because the mouth of Sauron is much more of a blank slate upon which uh, we can write. Um, ver- we know very little about the mouth of Sauron. Like, what what, what did he do? What kind of... Pow- Does he have powers of some kind? Like, is there any magic or sorcery involved with the mouth of Sauron? That's a little unknown. Um, uh, um, yeah, creepier and more human adjacent, Marie, is exactly it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Rhiannon is suggesting maybe a Nazgul could show up in the end. Um, I kind of like the idea, um, of the, uh, um, I kind of like the idea of a Nazgul making an appearance at some point, maybe even at a, at a turning point towards the end of the season. Um, it could be sort of a crisis moment um, at the end there. Um, Maria is saying, is the, uh, is the mouth of Sauron really old? Well, that's one of the mysteries, right? Who is he and how old is he, in fact? Um, if he's a black Numenorian, he could easily be 150 at the time of uh, the, you know, the parley in front of the Black Gate. Um, and that'd be fine. So that's possible. Um, but um, uh, here's another possibility. What if the mouth of Sauron is a title that gets passed down, right? What if this is not the mouth of Sauron that we meet later on, but the predecessor of the mouth of Sauron? What if this is the old mouth of Sauron? Um, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's also possible. Um, you're right. It, it's it's kind of like a high priestly role, Marie. Exactly the kind of thing that I'm thinking because it does seem it's got to be his first move, right? Sauron's first move in the and this is like just a you know this is in the first years after he's come to power. Um, step one is not building armies. Step one is reestablishing loyalty, and he's gonna reestablish that loyalty through the cult, right? Through it's so it's gonna be a move to religious conversion, especially, again, thinking about Tolkien comments about the corruption of the wills of the humans. Um, He has to morally corrupt them over time. And how is he going to do that? He's going to, you know, Dave, to use your expression there, he's going to be running the Sauron playbook, just like he did in Numenor, right? Let's try to work them up to the human sacrifice point. But if we can get them to be uh, uh, to be taking their political enemies and sacrificing them to me on altars... We're making headway, right? That's that's where I want them. Now they're ready to be recruited into my orc armies, basically, right? Um, now, I'm not saying, Nick, I agree. I'm not saying we have to spell that out. And I'm not saying we're getting to that point. It's not yet, 
right? Um, like their children's generation is going to be doing the human sacrificing, right? We're going to be doing much more mild atrocities in this generation. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta work up to that uh, eventually. Um, uh, hey, so, uh, yeah. Corey, what, um, what if, uh, um, so, so we have a different mouth of Sauron and uh, what if, um, what if it turns out, what if we set it up to where it turns out that one of, one of Gandalf's buddies becomes the future mouth of Sauron? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. And oh, that's, dear. that's part of the betrayal. He is part of the betrayal is this person, uh, you know, like betrays Gandalf uh, in an opportunity to uh, advance in Sauron's organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, man. So that, uh, yeah, Nick says that would add an entirely new layer to the confrontation in the return of the king. Yes. So thou art the spokesman, old graybeard. Uh, oh, man. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's uh, that's pretty epic. That's pretty epic. Um, uh that I that would be fun. I'm not opposed to that idea. Now, Stephen H. It's there's not nothing to say that it couldn't be this. It, it could be. Like I said, I it's fine. I would be fine with that. Um, by the way, um, why couldn't we? Uh, uh, Stephen H. Was just saying that like, but hang on, the mouth is stated to be a black Numenorian, uh, not one of the Haradrim. Well, why can't he be both? Who's to say that there's no Numenorean blood among the Haradrim? Why shouldn't there be? Indeed, perhaps that's one of the reasons why Gandalf chose this village in the first place. Because he saw that there was Numenorean blood here and thought that that was perhaps something, that that was an opportunity. So like the the Took family, parallel, right? Just as he chose the Took's. And because the because of who the Tooks were, not just like their political power in the Shire, but their potential, right? He recognizes that like there is there's good metal there, right, in the Tooks um, that can be encouraged, right? That can be can, can be brought to life. Um, so, if he f- was wandering through Harad and he found this place, it doesn't have to be a village, right? He found a a, a city or you know, a little, whatever, a tribe, um, where thinking of Faramir and Denethor, like where the blood of Numenor like breeds true. Like, you know, he's, he's like, wow, there's like, there, this, you know, clearly the Numenorians, like some Numenorians came and settled here. Um, and they were black Numenorians in the past. Like they were not of the faithful and yet it's been a long time since then. Right. So maybe Gandalf identifies that's why he identifies this clan, this tribe, this village, this city, whatever is the setting, um, as a place that would be could be a turning of the tide, in a in a sense like the Tooks were for the Hobbits. Um, so, um, yeah, Florian, I agree. The Haradrim is a very broad Gondor-centric classification anyway. It literally means the people from the south, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, the, uh, there is no such thing as a Haradrim in that sense, um, other than the very vague sense, uh, the, 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 the vaguest sense. So, anyway, um, uh, I, I kind of love that, actually. I mean, I kind of love the idea of there being a Numenorean connection. That would totally explain Gandalf's connection. And so, therefore... 
Stephen H., you're totally talking me into, you know, the betraying friend turns out to be the mouth of Sauron <laughs> later on. What could be better? Right? Oh, man. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we necessarily want to go that far. Um, but, um, but, but, you know, it, it could, that could, it, we could absolutely make that work. Um, what if, uh, um uh that uh, i think stephen was also suggesting what if the um um uh what if the the like the big bad guy uh is a woman right so like we have like a high priestess of sauron who comes in um to uh uh to not influence the people because the cult of sauron would not be in a public opinion swaying frame of mind right they would be coming in and establishing a new regime right they would be um you know it's again it's not going to be a this is um we really think you would guys would really love this new sauron religion that we're bringing to you right they're not coming they're not knocking on the door handing out pamphlets they're coming in and saying Sauron the Great has returned and those who are not faithful to him will be destroyed, right? I mean, it's it's going to be a fairly strong appeal uh, on their part. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Nick Palazzo says, imagine the reveal when he takes off his helm at the Black Gate. It'll be like the Red Skull showing up in Infinity War. Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> exactly like that. Boy, was I surprised when that happened, Nick. Um, uh, also get also get Nick Kroll to do the voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Stephen Cover says, "Ma'am, do you know that Sauron the Great has a sinister plan for your life?" Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, except more forcefully. Right. Uh, and if you don't acknowledge this, we will sacrifice you and your children on our altar. Kind of approach. Uh, but um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, am I? I mean, it feels to me like it's pushing the envelope a little to turn the frame into, as Marie says, the origin story of the mouth of Sauron. But I'm not saying I wholly dislike that idea. I kind of like it. But I like a lot of things that are a little bit over the top, so I'm not sure that's necessarily, you know... um, uh, the sort of the best judge. Now, Marie says, is the high priestess suggestion to mirror Thorin Gwethel? Well, it could well be. Um, you know, we could establish a kind of parallel there. Um, and especially, not even necessarily a parallel or exactly a mirror, Marie, but of course, look, we've established Sauron having, uh, you know, basically, you know, adopted Thorin Gwethel. She's, she's his number one, right? I mean, she is his second in command. So that he would take a priestess to be the the leader of his cult, far from out of character, right? I mean that 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 would seem so. In that way, Marie, to have it kind of be a sort of nod back to Thorin Gwethel. Um, in fact, um, uh, in fact, Marie, what I really it suggests: what if 
the high priestess of Sauron has like a, you know, the, part of the ceremonial garb could be something like this sort of the bat cloak of Thuring Gwethor. There, there could be some, I'm just saying we could work with some visual bat elements is what I'm saying uh, in the, uh, uh, in the getup of the high priestess. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think, I think that's cool. Um, there's no reason by, or, or we could do it even, we could kind of do it the other way around. That is the friend who betrays Gandalf, um, could be a woman, right? So that the mouth of Sauron at the black gate could be female. Um, that's not like a major it. change. Um, I mean, it's a change, but it's not, it's not, uh, that's not a, a complete, uh, change. So she like basically works her way into the Thorin Gwethel position. Um, not exactly. Cause she's not Thorin Gwethel. I mean, she's not a vampire. She's, uh, but yeah, a kind of bat priestess sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Stephen, no, the mouth of Sauron in twenty nine fifty one and the and the mouth of Sauron at the bike do not have to be different people. Absolutely not. But they could be different people, um, and the the mouth of Sauron at the Black Gate would have to be elderly, um, which is not impossible. But it would he would have to be elderly uh, in order for it to be the same person. Like, there are some obstacles, mainly age. Uh, there, it's not an insuperable obstacle by any means, but it's an obstacle. Um, I'm just saying, I don't think they have to be the same, basically. Um, <laughs> Stephen Cover says, it's good to see that women have broken through the glass ceiling in Sauron's organization. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, again, like, no, Stephen, not arguing that it's impossible. Totally not arguing that it's absolutely Black Newman or not. Like I said, he could be 150 at the Black Gate. Not a problem. Um, yeah, no, and I'm not saying it's a necessity. I'm just saying I also don't think it's a necessity that it has to be the same person. Um, and I kind of like the idea. Since the frame is going to force us to elaborate the... Um, uh, it's going to force us to elaborate the um, cult of Sauron thing a little bit, right? We're going to, we're going to be seeing behind the curtain, like, you know, behind the, uh, the, 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 you know, what's going on on the other side of the Anduin exactly uh, in Sauron's realms where he's recruiting. We're going to be showing that, which I think is a fun opportunity anyhow. And I definitely think that the cult of Sauron is the way to do it. Um, so showing that there is this structure um, sort of clerical structure, right? Priestly structure within the cult of Sauron and that that's going to be the dominant power. It's not going to be primarily the military. It's going to be primarily the Sauron priesthood that has the power in those realms. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and so the mouth of Sauron, what was his role, right? The mouth, like the black gate from the book, the mouth of Sauron. Like we don't exactly know his, other than he was implying that he was going to be set up as the ruler of the West. Right. So he clearly has an important position. Mouth of Sauron is a title you don't get for nothing. Um, uh, you know, you don't become the mouth of Sauron by collecting bottle caps. So, um, I, um, anyway, so I, I, I think it's, um, it's for us to show what lies behind that, right. For us to, and, and so for this reason, I kind of, I, I, I find very attractive the idea that the mouth of Sauron isn't just what this one dude 
rose to become, but that the mouth of Sauron is a title. And personally, I kind of think the mouth of Sauron is an awesome title for the high priest of the cult of Sauron. Like that really totally works um, uh, for me. Um, But um, anyway, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. Florian, I agree. It does sound like the title of a high priest. Um, You know, the one who speaks on, you know, I speak to you with the mouth of Sauron, right? You must obey. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that works really, really well. So I love that as the opportunity to elaborate the cult of Sauron, using the mouth of Sauron as that kind of a political and religious figure makes a lot of sense. And so what I like about it not being the same person as the person at the Black Gate, what I like about that is that it shows that there is, um, that it's a, it's a system, right? It's not just like, here's one guy who had a random career, which wound up with him making good in the court of Sauron. That's, we could make an interesting story out of that one person, but I think it's even more interesting to have this fold into the whole story of the region, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I um I like it. I like it. Um uh, Yeah, cool. Okay. Um and if one or both of them is a priestess, I I I the the uh, Marie, I wasn't even thinking of the Thuring the Thuringwethel parallel, but I like it. I like it a lot. Um as a a thing that Sauron would do um and be sort of comfortable with even to have there be um, again, as I suggested, open allusions to Thorin Gwethel, um, uh, you know, sort of homages to Thorin Gwethel in the uh, priestess role. Um, okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't know. Origin story of the mouth of Sauron is kind of appealing to me the more I think about it. Um yeah. It also really shows the um um it really shows the the choices, right? The choices that the people that Gandalf is dealing with here are making. It also shows that Gandalf was right. Um that is the people in this village, town, city, tribe, clan that he visits, um they do have an important destiny in front of them. They are, in fact, going to be movers and shakers, right? Um, It's just that one of them ends up moving and shaking for Sauron instead of against him. Um, And the one, you know, uh, you know, the one, uh, uh, the one virtuous person that he takes out of the town with him, the one, the the one survivor, um, we can, he can come in later on, right? We can, I mean, I, uh, I totally want to have a frame that involves um, Denethor and Thingol and, you know, uh, uh, you know, pre-kindergarten Theoden running around. And, you know, like I, that's yeah, I really I would love that. Um, and if we can have this other Haradrim character that we bring in, um, I think that it um, it would be. That would that would work. Uh, that you know he he could also be kind of involved there, um, and therefore could take part in the Thorongil series of things, um, and so yeah, that's the note of hope at the end, Marie. Okay, good. So the answer to my second question: the role of Gondor, I think not. 
I think let's not go to Gondor. And I mean, again, unless the end, right? Unless, you know, in the very final scene at the end of the final episode, we have Gandalf and this, the one surviving Haradrim guy um, arriving at Minas Tirith, basically, or approaching Minas Tirith or crossing the river or something like that. Um, uh, that I think is, but I don't think that we go, um, um, I don't think that we go that, that I don't think that we go into a Gondor. There's going to be plenty to do, um, down there. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, I like it. I like it. Um, okay, cool. So is, is that enough to go on? Oh, script outline writers. Can you work a story out of that? Um, I think there's, uh, there's some, there's plenty of potential there. If there are specific um, questions that you guys have about frame that you would want to elaborate more or ideas that you want to run past us, I'd be happy to come back to that. But I think that, I think this is, I, I'm, I'm liking this a lot. Origin story of the mouth of Sauron was not, did not see that coming. Uh, that's really fun. Okay. I'm going to let everybody go because it is late. So um, our next session will be two weeks from tonight, November 19th. So that's the Thursday before Thanksgiving. So we're still safe. Um, and we're going to be discussing episode one. So the hope we're going to have uh, outline scripts. We'll see. Um, we'll see what we have. We're going to talk our way through episode one. We'll see what questions emerge as we uh, are reading and discussing that. So uh, we'll be responding to the work of our uh, our script team uh, there for episode one. And uh, um, excellent. Awesome. Rhiannon says the script is done. You're proofreading it now. Great. So look forward to reading the script and we will talk about it uh, next time. So look, uh, uh, make sure to go to the discussion boards and check out the um Oh, the 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 scripture will be posted there uh, so folks can read it before the episode. So awesome. Looking forward to that. So we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll discuss that in our next session uh, and then we will uh, 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 we'll continue on with more stuff there as we're now officially done uh, with our uh, pre-production and we enter into uh, uh, into production next session. Uh, so awesome. So thanks everybody for listening. Say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.